Good morning. In, just in case, um, I'm Madison Pierce. I'm a member here at Redeemer, and I get to uh, speak to you from time to time, so it's, it's lovely to be here. On this Sunday, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. And often, when there's occasion to do so, we baptize those in our midst who are in need. Knowing that many among us, including myself, as you'll see, are not lifelong Anglicans, I thought it might be helpful for me to share a bit about my own journey learning about baptism and to share what I think it signifies for us in the Anglican Church. A little known fact, I was baptized as an infant in the United Methodist Church. This was my grandmother's church, which for all intents and purposes was my church for most of my childhood. My parents did not attend when we were home, but we did attend church when we were with my grandmother. When I was younger, this was pretty frequent, almost once a month. And this uh, got more infrequent as I got older. Some of that was me getting busier, but it was also the case that my parents got divorced. After that time, these experiences in the church shaped me less and less. And by the time I reached high school, I did believe in God. That was pretty common where I grew up but it really meant very little in my everyday life. When I was about 13, God graciously revealed to me my misunderstanding about what it meant to be a believer. And he even revealed to me my lack of true commitment. But at that time, I was in a Baptist church, and in that church, my first baptism didn't count. My tradition told me not to trust my baptism as an infant, and so I made a public profession of an inward decision to follow Christ through a second baptism. To me, that day of my second baptism was no big deal. It was simply a step of obedience. A couple of years later, when I got to college, I continued to study, and I studied views on the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, and baptism throughout church history. I continued to read scripture, and I became fully convinced that these two practices, baptism and communion, that these are sacraments that offer those who participate a special connection with Christ. These, of course, were some early seeds that God planted that uh, grew as I transitioned into Anglicanism. Nevertheless, even though my view on what baptism signified had changed, during college I still identified as a Baptist. And I still thought that scripture taught that baptism was only for those who personally profess faith in Christ. As a result, I was very sad that I had not taken my second baptism more seriously. In my understanding of that tradition at that time, it was simply a public display. And as a result, at least to me, it felt like an empty ceremony. What I had come to understand was that my baptism should have been a rich experience where I encountered God in a special way. I didn't have that. And so I also did not trust my second baptism either. Sorry, this sermon is a little bit of a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> I'll come back to my story later, which, spoiler alert, it gets better. Uh, but let's take a detour. First, I want to talk about what baptism signifies for Christians, and more specifically for us as Anglicans. In the New Testament, the significance of baptism is taught through two images or analogies, or at least two. 
The first is resurrection. A key passage for this is Colossians 2, 11 to 12, and I'll read it. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Here, this passage alludes to the actual motions of someone being baptized by immersion. You are buried, and then you are raised. And of course, this imagery makes sense because at the time, many adults were coming to faith and thus being baptized in this manner. This connection that Paul makes between baptism and resurrection, it symbolizes the work that God does in each of us through faith. To use Paul's language again, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but now we are made alive in Christ. This is a spiritual resurrection that takes place during our earthly lives, but it parallels the resurrection that each of us will experience after our physical death. Many of you have heard me say this before. I've said it as I've preached at Redeemer and certainly in my classes. You will hear me say it many more times. An important message in the Bible is that our God is a God who brings life out of death, or at least life out of a place where there is none. This is a pretty easy theme to illustrate. For example, at creation, God created life out of nothing. He created all things and formed Adam out of dust. And this is, of course, a biblical symbol for death. He brought life to the wombs of many women, Eve, Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, and many more. When the first child is brought forth in Scripture, his mother Eve says that it is with the help of the Lord. And I think this could be a pattern that we would see uh, throughout Scripture. Though slightly different, God made water flow from a rock and manna come from heaven. This is nourishment that sustained the lives of his people. He raised the dead through prophets, servants, and of course his son. And he also raised his son from death to a new and lasting life. And this enduring life will be ours too. Our baptism is a promise of that future renewal, as well as a promise of renewal during our earthly lives. Another connection, in addition to resurrection, that Scripture makes with baptism is washing or cleansing. Baptism signifies not just our renewal, our life out of death, but purification. Washings, cleansings, purifications, rituals, these are relatively foreign words to us. So what do they mean? For the people of God in the first century, washings were a common part of their life. Washings were a part of the Levitical system, and they helped people to obtain ritual purity when they encountered something that made them unclean. Many also think that these washings became a more significant part of Jewish life in dealing with sin, especially at times when worship in in the temple was not possible or at least restricted in some way. Sin and impurity have to be dealt with, and at that time, washings offered away. So this is the cultural context for the baptism of John the Baptist. He was encouraging the people to take place in cleansing rituals that symbolized their repentance. They were preparing the way of the Lord. They were cleansing themselves in preparation for the Messiah. In the same way, 
our cleansing through the waters of baptism prepares our hearts in a significant way for the coming of Jesus into our lives. In the New Testament, it is clear, and going forward as well, of course, our bodies are the spaces for God's holy works. They must be consecrated, made holy for him. To put this another way, I might say that, in a sense at least, baptism is preparatory. It cleanses us and prepares the way of the Lord into our lives. I think we see this in two of our texts that we have for today, the reading from Acts and the gospel reading from Luke. We'll work through each of them together. First, in the reading from Acts, we see that the Samaritans have come to faith. They have even been baptized by the time we get there in the story. What's interesting is that this comes at a time in history when salvation for the Samaritans might have been controversial. They might have, might have wondered, does God really want Samaritans in his kingdom? This question and the related doubt that it represents is representative of racism or at least bias among the people of God at this time. From the beginning, it is clear that the promise had been that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. But for all of history, and indeed this persists, the people, have got, people of God have sought ways to exclude others. This is why, I think, God confirms the conversion of the Samaritans through an extraordinary sign from the Spirit. This comes through the authoritative prayers of leaders in the early church, John and Peter, the apostles. God makes it so that for you to doubt the conversion of the Samaritans, you have to doubt these pillar apostles, and indeed, you have to doubt the Holy Spirit himself. Moving to our other reading, I think we see some similar patterns in our gospel reading from Luke. There we see that many were encouraged by the teaching and indeed even the presence of John the Baptist. They saw him as someone that God had sent on their behalf. They hoped, I think, that that meant that John the Baptist was the Messiah, especially when he performed the priestly act of cleansing them. But John was not the Messiah, and their water baptism was, in a sense, preparatory. There was more to come. As John says, another was coming who would baptize them with Holy Spirit and fire. The true Messiah would come, and he would bring justice. In Luke 3, 21 to 22, we see the account of Jesus' baptism also. It begins with Jesus standing in the midst of others, being baptized like all the other people of God. It's, it's almost humorous. The text says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Jesus is one of them. He is yet another human being. But, of course, when Jesus is baptized, it goes a little differently. He is set apart from his sisters and brothers too. The heavens open up and the Spirit descends upon him. This is a sign from God that this man is special. This story in Luke reflects many important Christian teachings. First, again, it affirms the humanity of Jesus. He is baptized like all the other humans in the story. And even right after this is when Luke decides to include his genealogy. His earthly genealogy traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. 
which of course means that Jesus is related to each and every one of us. But Jesus is also special. On this day, the Spirit descends on him. And for those watching, this is confirmation that Jesus is sent by God on their behalf. One of the images that we see here is that Jesus is portrayed as the servant of God, one who will restore faith, or sorry, sight to the blind, liberation to the captives, and so much more. Many texts in Isaiah, including the one that Jesus will read about himself in Luke 4, they refer to this servant of God as the one on whom God's Spirit rests. Jesus is also the Son of God. In Luke, this has actually been said several times already. This is the Son of God who will reign forever. But here at Jesus' baptism, the words that God says as he speaks from heaven, he says, you are my son. This reinforces the idea, and it also likely draws upon Psalm 2, where the king is offered the nations as, the inher- as his inheritance. But as the gospel progresses, we will see that this son of God is different from the others who have been called king. His eternal reign is by no means hyperbole. It really will last forever. He alone can reign forever because he alone is the true son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. The rest of Luke will confirm what is implied here at the baptism of Jesus. These three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, together will save all of humanity. They are united in essence and will, and yet each has a specific mission for us. This is where I could throw in some Marvel references, huh? Again, this passage and its surrounding context imply quite a lot within our creeds. An essential teaching is that the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal. All of them are necessary. All of them work together on our behalf. But you might wonder, How do we see their mutuality or their necessity represented in this particular text? Isn't Jesus portrayed here as one who is rather lowly, a mere mortal? We might even ask, who are mere mortals to God? But of course, early Christians noted that the sonship of Jesus reflects that he is begotten of the Father and not first, but that the identification of God as Father assumes or necessitates the presence of a son. You cannot be a father without a child. In the same way, Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit rests upon him. He empowers him. But at the end of Luke, Jesus will foreshadow his own sending of the Spirit. He, of course, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay, so at this point you might be wondering, Why in the world should I care about the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus? You might be wondering, aren't these just theological fun facts from the scholar that nobody cares about except her and the theologians in our midst? Of course not. But I know I would say that, right? (laughs) It is indeed the case that the Trinity is good news for us. I believe that while the baptism of Jesus was distinctive in its outward signs, It is a glimpse of what takes place in each of us as we enter the family of God. Look again at what God says when he speaks from heaven. He says, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. These are words that God says to human beings at various points in the history of the world. 
I could show this in many ways, but let me appeal to the lectionary first. Look again at our reading from Isaiah. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by my name. You are mine. Skipping ahead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We are those who are beloved, who are called by name, and who are the children of God. And though it's not a part of this passage in Isaiah, in Acts 2 and throughout the book, we will see that we are those on whom the Spirit of God rests. As the narrative of Acts continues after the coming of the Spirit, The things that the Messiah does, healing the blind, caring for the poor, liberating those who have been enslaved to sin, the people do those things too. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together rescue you, and they empower you to bless others. In our baptism, we prepare the way for their work, and we follow in the pattern of our beloved brother Jesus, who is, again, both God and human. So this is what baptism symbolizes in part for us. But perhaps you're on the edge of your seat waiting to hear more about my baptism story. (laughs) If you remember, we left off when I was in college. At that time, I believed that baptism was for those who consciously professed faith in Christ, but also that it was a sacrament, not simply a memorial. Okay, so let me skip ahead a little bit to the last few years of our family's time. Surprise, we became Anglican. (laughs) But despite the many conversations that we had had about how the Anglican church fit with our theology, with our rhythms as a family, I recognized that we had never actually had a conversation about what converting to Anglicanism or joining the Anglican church meant for our family in terms of our views about baptism. For some families, Their view on baptism is not really something to worry about too much. But for us, any conversation that we had about baptism had a face. Our daughter, Isla's. For us, this was not a theoretical conversation, but we actually needed to make a decision for her. We talked and thought through scripture and Anglican teaching, and ultimately we accepted that scripture gave space for infant baptism. With that space in view, we decided to submit to the teaching of our denomination and to baptize Isla. So we approached the leadership of Redeemer in early 2020 with the hope that she could be baptized soon. Um, But some stuff happened in early uh, 2020, about a month later, and her baptism was delayed. In some ways, I'm grateful. We had almost a year really, to learn more about baptism in the Anglican tradition, to read our own Scott McKnight's excellent book on infant baptism, and to think about what baptizing Isla would signify, even to our family and friends who remained Baptist. Once the date for Isla's baptism was finalized, my own insecurities about my baptisms came flooding back. By this time, Isla was two, 
but I wondered, would she understand? Would she be able to trust her baptism? She seemed so little. So I frantically began to catechize her. No, no one that knows me is surprised about this, are you? So I, I began to explain what would happen on the day that she was baptized and why. The one sentence that I wanted her to understand was, your baptism welcomes you into the family of God. But on the Sunday of her baptism, one year ago tomorrow, I realized that Isla, even at two, understood so much more than most children do within our tradition. Ideally, she really would have been baptized earlier. And at that time, I thought about all of the precious Redeemer children, those who, whom God had called and kept. And it was in that moment that I trusted my baptism, my first baptism as an infant. And that, I knew that that was when I had been welcomed into the family of God. On that day, when I was baptized, God prepared a way for himself. He worked in me in ways that I really still don't fully understand. But that day remains an important part of my journey of faith. So to close, I encourage each of us to do just one more thing. To start, if you have not been baptized, then I would ask you to reflect on whether God might be urging you to make that decision. But if you have been baptized, then I encourage you to reflect on your own baptism. If you remember the where and the when. But let us each take a second to thank God for the work that he did in us on that day. Let us pray. We thank you, dear God, that you have prepared a way in our hearts. You've cleansed us from our sins, and you have made us alive in you. Help us, Lord, to trust in your work through our baptisms and to delight in your ongoing presence in us at all times, but especially when we feast together at the table. Amen.